0: There, right, things always happen for a reason. There's a song. I think it was a journey song. You know the song I'm talking about? It was the uh, "I Got the Here Comes Pesach Blues." Do you know that song? No, I should have. Heard it. It's a one. It's a, <laughs> it's a wonderful song. It's a wonderful song. I, Journeys. Journeys is a thing again because they put out a, a new album so my wife hates that song <laughs> in, in a very beautiful way my wife grew up in a home where some, somehow my mother-in-law has some that she does not dislike Pesach and she raised the family of, of not just women but people in general Baruch hashem, love Pesach. Pesach is a trigger word though for so many of us. It's not an easy uh it's not an easy Yontif. Not not to go on a rant about this. I happen to very strongly dislike Pesach programs. Baruch hashem, I grew up in a home where we never went on Pesach programs. Pesach was home. My mother is a tzaddikess. My entire family is uh, is not observant, and so Pesach was the yomtiv where everybody came to us. So it was like they would come, you know, an hour before yomtiv. They would park themselves. They would drive home afterwards. They'd come back for a second seder. And even though my mother had a full time job, she put on Pesach. She did it with a smile. My father was a a wonderful leader of the Seder. So I grew up in a home where, where Pesach was a beautiful thing, and we never went away to Pesach programs. And if you would have asked us, like, would we have even wanted to go away to a Pesach program, there wouldn't have been any one of us that wanted to go. And and today people are running to these programs and chaval, chaval for so many to have a, a Pesach Seder in a dining room. It's not... But I understand. I understand. Some people say, like, Rebbe, you don't understand how difficult it is for my wife to make Pesach with everything that's going on, and we're both holding down full-time jobs, and we're trying to raise the children. And the amount of stress that's in the house before Pesach, it's so hard. And I hear it. I hear it. And and how many women show up to the Pesach Seder, or shmata? and and just, you know, it's like uh, I had a Chavar Friday night, his father worked very hard during the week, and we would place bets Friday night how far into the meal his father would make it. I, I always took the I always took the under. I always said, he's not going to make it past the soup. And my friend was like the eternal optimist. He would say, I'm telling you, this time my father's going to be awake into the middle of the meal. And I was like, there's no way. He never makes it. And I made a lot of money off that guy falling asleep every time. He was... Uh, but how many women show up, and it's just like, can we get to shochanorich? And of course, we all want nachas from our children. We all want to, you know. But it's like, okay, you said the Manashtana, like, and chaval to have such a seder. I knew a man when I was growing up who was in the catering business, a wonderful, wonderful Jew, and you know that game. I don't know. I don't know if you know this, but you know that that boys play a game the day after a seder when they go to shul. How late did your seder go? Do girls play this game? Yeah, but when do you play it? I mean, you must play it like afterwards, whatever you see each other in the afternoon, but like Yumtif morning, that's the game that you play in shul, how late did your seder go? So yeah, well, kids always exaggerate, yeah. Mine went till four o'clock in the morning, <laughs> like we're davening Vasikan, you know, like I've been davening for five hours already, it's all Shekhar, but this this one person he would show up to shul, and I was ask his you know, I was young, I would ask his son, what time did your seder go until? So his father always had the same line every single year. He would say, Our Seder is like the matzah. 18 minutes or less, because he was so exhausted from weeks and weeks of 16, 17, 18 hour days of cooking, and by the time he got to the seder, he was to shemata, and they used to daven up. That's what he called it. they used to daven up the Haggadah and like you know, if you, the Haggadah is actually not that long, so you know, there's like a sense of like I just I'm I'm too tired to do it. The hachana for Pesach could be so. I'm trying to think what the right word is. It could be so pressing. No, it's more than that. The for Pesach could be so weighty. could push us to a place where we push have nothing left. Rav of Myshul said this Shabbos that uh, his wife was talking to her grandmother, a woman who's in her 90s. And uh, she was talking about the cleaning that they were doing for Pesach, and the grandmother said that she knew the daughter of the Chafetz Chaim. And the Rav was very clear. He said, "I'm not pasquining anything la and I don't want anyone to walk out of this shir with any Pesach halacha." But the daughter of the Chafetz Chaim said to this grandmother, "In my house, Pesach cleaning meant we straightened up a bit. That's what we did. There was no, there was no like, you know, like heavy lifting. And." The Rebbitzin said to her grandmother, "She said, Grandma, I, I moved the aron and I found tons of chametz under there." But the grandmother was insistent. Who says you have to move the aron? So, I'm not passing anything la La, and I don't know exactly how much the Chafetz Chaim had in his house. And I can't imagine that the Chafetz Chaim's house looked anything like the homes that we have. Bar Hashem, we get to live here in Eretz Yisrael, and, and Bar Hashem, we live with with a beautiful level of appropriate materialism. I think I once heard that the Chafetz Chaim had to sweep his house, like because there was like the floors were dirt. So I was like, okay, but say they're like, what? I can't imagine they had very much chametz and very many arrow note that they needed to move. I can't imagine that they had the heavy beds that we have, where you have to lift up the bed and take everything out in order to move the bed. So it could very well be that uh, that the Chafetz Chaim's hakhanah for Pesach was was much easier. But I think the message, the overall message that the Chafetz Chaim was trying to bring, was uh, an appropriate message. It was an appropriate message for all of us that. Pesach should not be a debilitating yantif. Chas v'shalom. Pesach should not be a debilitating yantif. And again, as as I've heard so 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 many times over the years, this is especially true for women. I think it's true for the guys also, but it's certainly true for the women. Of when I was a kid, when I was in seminary, when I when I had my haggadah, I saw in one of the seminaries where I spoke, the girls bought. You know, they have that uh, chidusha e Torah thing. We used to just buy notebooks, but now they have like a fancy leather-bound thing that says Chiddush Torah. <laughs> Baruch Hashem, Jews have learned how to monetize everything. Like, so these girls had a special Chiddush Torah Hagada edition. Somebody got very wise and they said if we put if we put Hagada on the front of it, we could we could charge even more than the regular notebook, you know, because it says Hagada on it. And these girls were sitting; they had these pages and pages of notes from all the shiurim that they heard. One imagines that the Pesach Seder that they come to is one that's filled with a different level of enthusiasm and excitement, given the Ahana for Pesach. The guy leaves yeshiva, he gets a job. How much time does he have? Today what we ask women to do is impossible. It's not a, it's not a normal thing that we're asking people to hold down a full-time job and raise their families and keep a, keep a home to some extent. It, it's, not, it's not a normal thing. It's a Herculean task. And it's understandable why a woman would show up to Pesach, aside from the fact that the hachana for Pesach might have felt crippling, and somehow nobody can ever get the help that they need, despite whoever's around. It just somehow doesn't work. So, with all of these things, and not necessarily being able to prepare, even if you even if you bought the Rvmyelch Biderman Hagada and you've decided, I'm not saying that one in specific, but it seems that everyone is buying that one this year. Uh, you see on uh, on WhatsApp status, all the boys taking pictures with their of Haggadah with the same Rav Mylach pose as Rav Maylach, You know, I'm gonna I'm I'm writing Hagada Bez Hashem will be out next year, but I'm gonna make a pose like that so go viral on social media. But um, even if you buy a new Haggadah, who has time to sit and go through Haggadah? Who has time for these things? Rather, my wife this year she. She asked me last night, in Bar Hashem, I was able to get a hold of it. There's a book called The Last Slave. You've read this book? I've not read this book. My mother-in-law told my wife about it. It's some sort of uh, novel about... Uh, I'm not exactly sure what it's about, but it's something about the story of Yetzirah Mitzrayim. And even that, just at night, to, to read a couple of pages before you fall asleep from the exhaustion of the day, to do something to invigorate Pesach, it's so hard. So... Hopefully, tonight, we'll be able to do something to to enliven our Pesach in some way, and just to take a moment to give gratitude to yourselves for, you know, a week and a half for Pesach to, to stop, and to hit pause, and to come out to a she'er and to do something. It says a lot about the community that we live in, Baruch Hashem, that, that people today are doing whatever they can to find some hisairus in a world that is increasingly difficult to find any passion and any meaning, Baruch Hashem, Bar we have a group of women that come out and they say, no, I refuse to have a passionless Yiddishkeit. It says a lot about you. And also just a gentle reminder, of course, I know everybody will, but when you go home, just to... Uh, I, I know your husbands, I'm sure, express a massive amount of gratitude to you when they go out for a night seder or, or a minion. I'm sure they always come home and express their gratitude to you for the time that they spend out of the house. What do they say Yaakov Avinu was Masak and Mariv because he had 12 children. I also would be Masak and Mariv if I had 12 kids. I wouldn't want to be home at night. <laughs> I know every man, is, he comes home, he's like, I'm so sorry, I would love to spend more time here. Just Mariv, you know, it's like the frumest excuse of all time. But just a gentle reminder to say thank you to your husbands also for taking over at night so that you could uh, so that you could come out to a I think it's very important in today's day and age for men to support their wives in this way. And also... As Rabbi Pesach Kron said many years ago to women, he said, If you want your husband to say thank you for making the challah, don't forget to say thank you for bringing home the bread. It's, a, uh, it's a, good, a, good line, a good line. Hakar Satov goes a long way in a marriage. There's no such thing as too much gratitude. And, uh, okay. With that preamble, I hope that it'll be meaningful. The Balagada tells us that. If Akadush Hu had not take us of, had taken us out of Mitzrayim, we would still be slaves to Paro today. Come on, every line of the Haggadah has so many questions. But this, this line in particular, one of the questions that the Mefarshim ask is it's not true. There are no more Paros. At some point, Paros stopped being Paro. There were no more Paros. There are no more Egyptian Pharaohs. So, what does the Baal mean? We would still be Avadim to Paro in Mitzrayim. We wouldn't be Avadim to Paro in Mitzrayim. It's just not true. There was no more Paros. What it means is that, what it means, I don't know what it means, but maybe one could suggest a possible answer, that what it could mean is that Paro is emblematic of all of the evil in the world. That if we're slaves to a czar in Russia, if we're slaves to, to materialism, whatever we're slaves to, that's what's called Paro. Paro was the representative of the Nachash in physical form, as we'll soon see. And so all the evils in the world are called Paro, for us. And so had HaKadosh Baruch not taken us out of Mitzrayim, we would still be, fundamentally, we would be enslaved to the Paros of our lives. So Kedai to take a, a critical examination, a deep look, into what Paro is, what, what Paro really means, not on a not on a practical level of we were enslaved in Mitzrayim, but on a Hashkafic level. What is Paro? How do we live under the dominion of Paro? What can we do to get out from under the dominion of Paro in our lives? When Moshe Abenu was told to go to Paro, we all know in Parshas Bo, that he's told, Bo el Paro. Come to Paro. And of course, there are many questions that are asked on this. Uh, this is based on a sikhah from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, tonight's Shir whatever additions there are on my own, but the fundamental idea comes from the Rebbe. So the Rebbe asked, this is the Parsha of Geula. Every Parsha has a name for a very specific reason. So Bo, which means to come to Paro, does not seem to capture the essence of the Parsha. We would have expected the name of the Parsha to be something like Geula. Bo el-Paro is not a name that we can look at it and say, that's, that's a dika Parsha. But really it's even worse than that. Because come to Paro is the exact opposite of leaving Paro. Because if, we if, if we were going to leave Paro, then the last thing we should do is come to Paro. If the whole Parsha is a Parsha of Gaula, so the, the name Bo really symbolizes the gullus. It's the coming to, not the leaving from. So Bo seems to be a really inappropriate name for the Parsha. And then there's the famous question, which is... It shouldn't say, bo al paro, it should say, leich al paro. It shouldn't say, come to paro, it should say, go to paro. So, I want to share with you a, a Zayr Kadush, A very beautiful Zayr Kadush. Zayr Kadush says, why does it say... Ask this question, why does it say, come to paro? It should have said, go to paro. It says that Hashem brought Moshe Rabbeinu into a chamber within a chamber. So Moshe Rabbeinu was going, lifnaiva lifnim, so to speak. He was going into the innermost essence... And what was he going to see? He was going to see the mighty serpent, the Tannin which is Paro, as we'll soon explain why. Why he was the known as the uh, as the great Tanin, as the great serpent. And Moshe Abenu was afraid to approach this Hechal in Shamayim that was called Paro. Moshe Abenu was afraid to go into that innermost chamber. So what does that mean? So first of all, up until now, Moshe Rabbeinu had never gone to the palace. Moshe Rabbeinu had always met Paro at the Nile River. Right? Whenever he was bathing at the Nile River, so then Moshe Rabbeinu would go to him there. So Hashem is saying, on a simple level, what does it mean "boel Paro? It means, come with me to Paro. It's not, come to Paro. Obviously that would be, go to Paro. It be, come with me, accompany me. Right? That's what the Zara Kodesh is saying. As saying, I'm taking you into this innermost chamber to confront the essence of Paro. Come with me on this journey, because you, Maishu Rabbeinu, are afraid. That's one understanding, one answer to this question. Of course, there's a deeper level here, which is, why is it that HaKadosh Barhu is inviting Maishu Rabbeinu to confront the innermost essence of Paro? Why is that happening? So it would seem, based on this Zaira kadosh, that in order for a Klal Yisrael to leave Mitzrayim, Moshe Rabbeinu needs to confront the innermost essence of Paro. In other words, it goes something like this. If a person wants to leave Mitzrayim, they need to come to Paro. Not just to come with Hashem to Paro, but to come to Paro. In other words... It's like a, like a Chinese finger trap. You know, if you like, pull very hard, it doesn't let you out. But if you go the opposite direction, then you could leave. So Geula occurs, not as we would expect. We would expect that Geula means leaving Paro. But in fact, it's just the opposite. Based on the zayra kadosh, you would say that Geula occurs <laughs> when you lean into Paro. When you discover the innermost essence of Paro, that's where Geula occurs. Which is a big chiddush. I think the way we could possibly say it is like this. The nitzots of gallus is Geula. Just like the nitzots of an Aveira, the nitzots that sustains, the svasama says that the nitzots that sustains an Aveira is chuva, the nitzots that sustains Golas is Geula. In order to leave Golas... You can't leave Gaulus by moving away from Gaulus. You have to move to the innermost essence of Gaulus, which is Geula. There can be no redemption without exile. It's like, um, to put this in relationship terms, I always understand it better when it's put in the context of a relationship. If a, if a spouse wants to be close to their spouse, if a wife wants to be close to her husband, if a husband wants to be close to his wife... Moving away from the fight is not where shalom bias occurs. It's finding with each other within the fight. It's, it's like, it occurred to me once that if you put actual language to the words that a couple is using when they're fighting, if you put real language, not, not language based on fear, every fight would be exquisitely beautiful. It's like, why is every wife upset at their husband? I, I don't mean a specific thing that, that nobody's ever figured out. If, if, you, if, you, if you do have a formula for that, I would appreciate knowing that, what the one thing is that we're all doing wrong, because it seems we're all doing something. I'm not exactly sure. I don't know how to pinpoint it, but I know we're, doing, I know we're messing it up. But, but every, every wife, on some level, is saying to her husband... She doesn't use these words, but what she means to say is, I wish we spent more time together. That's a very beautiful thing to say to somebody. Of course, it doesn't come out that way. It comes out in a horrible way. It comes out like, you're never around, right? It's just like, now it's an attack, right? Now it's, I'm pushing the person away. What do you mean I'm never around? Don't you know that I'm not around because of all the things I'm doing for you? Yeah, but I want you to be around, right? But like... That's not, and, and the truth is, we don't even want our husbands to be around. When they're around, all we do is fight with them, right? But we're, it's about what we're really saying when we say to somebody, um, I want you to be around, is not, not I want you to be around. I know that you don't have a lot of time. But when you have time, if you could be present, that would be important to me. Th- those words are actually exquisitely beautiful, because you're saying to somebody the most important thing, the thing that bothers me to my core, the thing that gets me so upset, is when do we have time for each other? Like, I want so badly to be close to you. So the words that we use are actually the exact opposite of the words that we mean. What we mean to say is exquisitely beautiful. And so if a couple would have the courage to lean into the vulnerability of the fight and to understand that each side just wants so much. Like when a husband says, what do you want from me? I'm working. What he means to say is, don't you know how much I love you? Don't you know how much I'm sacrificing for you? Don't you know how much I'm giving to you already? Why is it that I feel like I'm not enough in this relationship? Because more than anything, the person that I want to be enough for is you. Those are beautiful words to say, but of course nobody says those words, so we just beat each other up with the externalities of these words. To leave galos doesn't mean just to walk away from it. That's missing a gvaldic opportunity. To leave galos means to discover the inner essence of Gaulus. The inner essence of Gallus must be discovered within Paro himself. There's a secret that Paro holds. Whatever that secret is, we don't know it, which is why we're in Gaulus. If we would only know what the secret of Paro is, then Mimela we'd be free. So it's, it's um, you know, that Maimar Chazal that says that Kal Yisrael had tried to leave Mitzrayim before, before Moshe Rabbeinu let them out? And many people had tried, Chazal say, and they were always killed. Maybe the depth of that mimer is is not just people tried, but Mitzrayim was very strong. I think that's the way we grew up hearing you know? it. like Mitzrayim had many many guards, nobody could ever escape Mitzrayim. That's what we grew up. We learned this mimer, but maybe it means something deeper than that. Maybe it means to leave Gaulus without discovering its inner essence is impossible. Those that left too soon did not leave too soon because because the guards were there and had not yet and Mitzrayim had not yet been broken. It means that we had not yet discovered Whatever it is that needs to be discovered That releases ourselves from its rhyme So the question is What is that? What is the secret of Paro that, that brings about this If Bo'el Paro If we need to come to discover the inner essence of Paro In order to be free What is the great secret of Paro? So Listen to the Pasuk in Yecheskel Pasuk in Yecheskel here is amazing Pasuk in Yecheskel says, speaking about here's Paro, the king of Egypt. Look what it refers to: this the great serpent, who he's crouching in the middle of the stream. Asher Amar and what is he saying? The river is my own, and I made the river. The river is my own, and I made the river. In other words, what defines Paro? What would we have expected? So let's think about what Paro did. So Paro murdered millions and millions of people. I once heard. I once heard a Holocaust survivor. I didn't hear from the Holocaust survivor. I heard somebody say in the name of a Holocaust survivor, Mitzrayim was a drop in the bucket compared to the Holocaust. Far be it from me to, to compare which suffering was worse. And, and I was not born in that era, Baruch Hashem, and I don't know from the suffering of the Holocaust. But from the Midrashim of Chazal, it's very clear that what occurred to us in Mitzrayim, the torture, was unlike anything that's ever been paralleled in history. There's nothing that comes even close. And 210 years of it. it the, the, if, you read the, if you read the Midrashim, what's the name of that book they put out many, many years ago? Let My Nation Go. yeah. Then they followed it up with Let My Nation Do Everything. right. They had like a zillion in the series of Let My Nations. But if you read even a, like a little bit of that book, you read the Midrashim, beyond powerful, beyond, beyond powerful, what they went through in Mitzrayim, lo Oman. you can't possibly imagine what these people lived through. Murdering children, you know, the the punishment for hiding a baby was they murdered the entire family. That was the chesbun of Moshe, That was the of Amram and Yocheved. When Moshe Rabbeinu was born, three months premature, should we hide the baby or not? The, the question was, if we if we're caught, the punishment is your your entire family is murdered. They they baked children into the bricks. Is the, the the psychological torture of building in pitom and Ramses, the uh, the Samach Perach? They speak about the Avidas Perach of giving, of, of of although this we do find in today's day and age of diminishing the masculinity of men in a in a in a way that was horrific to their personhood. Paro is not described as any of these things. He's not described as a as a pagan god, and we all know. Paganism, paganism was responsible for, I mean, some of the worst practices in human history, and we sometimes forget that when Avram Avinu stood up to pagan practices, you're talking about a culture that that roasted their children. I mean, it was like child sacrifice was a real thing that existed in the world. I think sometimes we don't have enough Jewish pride when it comes to these things. Like, we were the nation that said to the world, "You're acting insanely. This is an insane thing to do." Do you imagine you have a child chas If a child and your husband, for Frumkite reasons, comes and says we have to sacrifice this child to have some sort of tshuva, okay. read no chas v'shalom, v'shal. They don't, That's that's not a, that's that's it's. They're not engaged in child sacrifice. It's not. It's not a different type of sick sacrifice. Yes, but not not child sacrifice. They're not murdering. You know. You know, day old babies. chas v'shal. It's, it, these, these things are, are are beyond despicable. Paro is not described as any of these things. This is not. This is not Paro. What does what, what, what does the pasuk say? The pasuk says it very simply, It's my river. I made the river. It's a strange thing to say that that Paro's that Paro's essence was a narcissist. That's a, that's what's basically being described over here. He was an egomaniac. It's a very hard thing for us to swallow given the fact that he literally bathed in the blood of Jewish children. So what does the pasuk mean over here? In Yiddishkeit, there are basically two movements. There's a movement of anivus of humility, and there's a movement of bitl. I'm sorry. There's a movement of anivas, which comes with betel, humility, nullifying yourself. And then there's a movement of gaiva. What's the danger of the movement of gaiva? Hakadosh Baruch Hu says, "What I want in this world is a dira More than anything, what Hakadosh Baruch Hu wants is to have a dwelling place in the world down below. Which means that Hakadosh Baruch Hu is asking to be invited into our lives." That's fundamentally what we're here to do, to invite HaKadosh Baruch Hu into our lives. I don't know how to say this nicely, so I'll say it in this way. There's no I have not yet discovered the nice way of saying this, so I'll just say it as it is. It works with the seminary girls more than with the... Uh, I'm sure it worked with. it would work with you also, but it works better with the seminary girls. You know that guy that you thought was really cute until he opened his mouth? That's the way, I, you know what I'm talking about? Remember when you were dating and this guy like showed up on a date and then he opened his mouth and you're like, nope. You know what I'm talking about? What What was the thing? The, the thing, it's not the bad date. It's not the guy who can't get a word out. That guy is like, okay, whatever. He's sweet, even, right? Like some other, some, but some girls are like, no, I could fix him. Like it's like a. <laughs> I'm not worried about those guys. Like, Rabbi, how am I, I, can't, I can't get two words out. How am I going to go out on a date? I'm like, you'll be fine. You know, like, uh, there's going to be some patient girl that, like, coaxes you into talking. By the time she's done with you, you won't, you won't be quiet for years. You know, like, all of a sudden that guy's the Gabai and his minion, you know. Like, you married for a couple years, he's straightened out. Some guys, like, when they open up their mouth on a date, it's, like, cringeworthy. It's like, what's the pshat? There was a pshat that is such a, like, <laughs> The pshat is, there's no space for anybody when there's gaiva. There's no, there's no space for you because I'm taking up all the space. A therapist once told me, it's a great line, he said, I don't treat, when I'm seeing couples, he said, I don't treat the couple, I treat the space in between. That's where the couple is, it's the space in between. I'm not treating the husband or the wife, there's a space in between. This thing, it's like amorphous type of thing, that's the space that I'm treating. And each one of them is contributing something to that space. If the thing that someone is contributing to that space is me, 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 so then the feeling on the other side is, okay, so this space belongs to you, but I'm not invited to participate in it. When a person is a Balgaiva, it's it's the destruction of any possibility of a relationship with HaKadosh Barucho. Because you won't invite God into your life if you think, yadi. This is what you mean, I did this. It's my river. I made this river. I sustained myself. It's, It's really even more than that, though. Because if it's your river... So think about the terrible things you might do to it. Like, we know that these narcissists live with a tremendous amount of fragility, right? Because to be that level of a balgaiva, it's built on a very low level of self esteem. That's why they need to puff themselves up and make themselves bigger than they are. What happens when you when you press that button? What happens when you say what happens when you say like you're actually not as big as you think you are? You ever watch what narcissists do? When like somebody starts to even touch, not even shake, even to touch the foundation of that corrupt system? They go ballistic. It's because the threat is huge. So an egomaniac, a Balgaiva, lives with the threat that this whole thing is going to collapse. In fact, seen through the prism of this understanding, one can understand why Paro says, Hava we have to deal very wisely with these Jews as they're getting bigger. like every society, when Jews come into the society, things seem to do better, right? There seems to be, we generate wealth, right? We're prosperous, in general, we're pretty moral, we're pretty good, right? We bring a lot to a society. If somebody were wise, they would say, good, let's have more of this, right? But if somebody's terrified of their position, if they live with the impoverished mentality of I'm not enough, now any, of, any, any threat to their power, right? If somebody else is powerful, that means that I'm not the most powerful, I'll share with you when I um, when I took the job in Mevaseret many 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 years ago. So I was speaking to a certain Rebbe, and he gave me a piece of advice. It's the worst piece of advice I've ever received in my entire life, and I'm I'm proud that I have never once listened to this piece of advice. He said to me, "Don't hire anyone that could replace you." And I was like, "That is like terrible!" Like I was like, "It was like sh- like I was so like wow, what type of system have you grown up in?" that there's so much political power play that you're, like, constantly terrified for your job. I have worked my entire career to hire people that I think could replace me. First of all, because I don't even want this job. But second of all... <laughs> second of all, because... I mean, think about that. Like, you have somebody who's, like, awesome at their job, but then they could replace you, but you're not going to put that person in front of the Talmudim. That's, like... It, it's it's the, that's the opposite of a good idea. It's a terrible idea. But it comes from this fear-based mentality. Paro... Paro believes, I created this. If somebody comes along and is prosperous, if somebody comes along and is successful, that's a threat. And when a narcissist is threatened, they can do horrific things. Some of the most terrible tragedies in human history have come from megalomaniacs who have terribly low self-esteem. And in an effort to try to sustain themselves, they'll do anything. They'll step on anyone. And at the core of Mitzrayim, that's really what's going on. It's a culture of fear that presents itself as, as a strong, powerful nation, but it's really just puffed-up ego. That's, the, that's really what's going on in, in Golis. In other words, to put this a little bit sharper, exile means to be in a place where I feel like I don't belong. There are people that are living in exile in their marriages. There are children that are living in exile in their yeshivas and their seminaries and their families. There are people that are in exile within their own communities because they feel like they don't belong. There are people that are in exile today because they don't feel like they belong, so they're trying to make the entire world have to be a place where everything belongs, even though that's not the way the world works. So everyone has to accept me no matter how it is that I am. That's also not a real thing. That's also a type of exile. Wherever we look, there are exiles, but at the core of every exile is fear. At the core of every exile is, I'm not enough for myself. There's a culture of fear, and therefore I need to control somebody else. I need to destroy somebody else. We're seeing a tremendous amount about that today. That's, that's for sure. Coddling people doesn't work, by the way. That, that actually only reinforces the belief that they're not enough. It's actually letting another person know, really, you're not enough. Like, I know you're not enough, and you know you're not enough, so I'm going to do everything I can to bend over backwards to make you feel awesome. The words that we use today are, are not the words that these kids, that everyone needs to hear. We need to teach people about the, the hard words, right? Grit, resilience, loyalty, being enough for yourself. Right? Not not like you're awesome. It's not it, it, Nobody's ever felt better. You know, uh, I don't know how it works in SEMS, but I know in yeshivas there's always the rebellion that call the guys tzaddik, and it is deeply uncomfortable to watch. Because if you watch a boy be called tzaddik, you see his face, it's quick. but It, go, it looks something like this. Right? <laughs> because no, they're not. And they know they're not. Right? So, like, what are you telling a boy when you say, come here, tzaddik? Uh, um... No, it, it, it's okay, it, they don't have to be a tzaddik, right? It's okay to say, let's talk about where you're really holding, because where you're really holding is okay. You don't have to be afraid of that. It's a culture of authenticity, right? These, we're moving towards these things, but we saw it a lot in COVID. We saw kids who had no idea how to cope, because they were never taught how to cope, because they never had to do anything hard. Bar Hashem, we're raising our families here in Eretz Yisrael. It's, it's quite a bit harder here. There's a There's a lot less... In so many ways. And it's so beautiful because our children will grow up at the level of resilience. One of the main things that I noticed, I mean, now my children, Baruch Hashem, are much older. And uh, I already married off a daughter. But I see that that they came to Eretz Yitzchol and, for example, they ran Kaita No before Pesach. You know how awesome it is that children at 8 and 9 and 10 years old are taking care of... I mean, it's like babies leading babies, right? <laughs> I just... Just now, I... I it could be that I have a second car somebody gave me for, for Pesach, but it's it's very dirty, and I'm, I'm not really going to clean it myself, and so I was thinking, maybe I just won't use it, and then I was driving on my block, and there's a group of kids outside cleaning cars, and so I stopped, and I said, how much is it to clean the car? And they're like, they're, they're children. They're like 11. And I'm like, they're like, it's 75 shekel to clean the car. So I'm like, okay, when's a good time? So this kid is a beautiful, sweet little 11-year-old kid. He pulls out his notebook to make an appointment with me. He's like... <laughs> There's, I have, this is what he says, he goes, I have a Wednesday slot at 3 and I have a Wednesday slot at 4. I'm sorry, that's all I have. <laughs> so I was like, uh, well, I'll take either one. Which one's better for you? He goes, I think the 3 o'clock would be better for me. Like, no problem. And they sit in there with their vacuum and they've got their music blasting. And I'm like, how, how, how wholesome is this? How good is this? These boys are learning that they're capable of doing something. And that if you want money, go make money, right? It's not something that's just given to them. These are important words. It encourages these children that that they have enough and that they do belong, no matter what's going on in their lives. That's the inner essence of parah. To put it a little bit differently, every mitzvah at its core is really a movement towards there is something larger than myself. And I can nullify myself before that thing. So if I'm going to give tzedakah, it's basically saying, I know, I earned this money, but there's something that's bigger than me that demands that somebody came to my door and I have this money, and I have this money in order to give away. I'm the, I'm the holder of this money. It's not, it doesn't truly belong to me. When it comes to Pesach, for example, I know that it's my home, but it's not actually my home. It's the Rabbani Shalom's home, and the Rabbani Shalom is asking me right now to get rid of the chametz in my home. And that can be an exhausting process. But hagufa—the fact that it's an exhausting process—is exactly part of our movement away from it's part It moves us away from the narcissism of life. You know the um, the old mashal about addiction. Uh, a man is a man is walking outside of his house, and God comes to him, or he prays to God for sobriety, and God comes to him, and he says. Um, He says, You want sobriety? The man says, Yes, I want sobriety. He goes, Good news, there's a sale on sobriety today. So the man goes, How much does sobriety cost? Sale is whatever you've got. The man reaches into his pocket, he says, I've got $5. God says, Great, the price of sobriety today is $5. The man looks at God, he goes, This is my last $5. If you take this $5, how am I going to gas up my car to get to work? God says, You have a car, you have a job. The price of sobriety just went up. It's $5 your car and your job. The man says if you take my car and you take my job, how will I pay the mortgage on my home? God says you have a home. The price of sobriety just went up, it's $5 your car, your job and your home. The man says God, if you take my home, where is my family gonna live? God says you have a family. The price of sobriety just went up. It's $5 your car your job, your house and your family. So the man got wise and he said, okay, I'm not going to say anything anymore. right?" And uh, God said, okay, here's the deal. I'll give you back your $5. I'll give you back your car. I'll give you back your job. I'll give you back your home. I'll give you back your family. But they belong to me. You're just holding on to them. Act with them as if they're my possessions. That's the price of sobriety. It's a very powerful marshal because it puts into focus whose life is it? We're, we're so... We're so, like, what do you mean? It's my life. Well, not actually. It's the Rebbeinah Shalom's life that he's entrusted to us to do with it as he wants us to. That's a very tall order. I'm not saying that that's like you snap your fingers and that's a 60, 70-year process. But I think as we get older, we begin to learn we're not in control of anything. And this life doesn't belong to us. And the more that we give it away, the more that it comes back in a healthy way. Every haver is the exact opposite movement. Every other is yes, but this is what I want. That's what avirah is in its essence. It's like I want to eat this right now, so I'm going to do that. Yes, but it's not the time to eat that right now, or that's not the that's that's not an appropriate food to eat. Right, but that's what I want. You see this all the time. You see it in yeshiva. A guy's like, yeah, but I want to stay asleep, and that's understandable because you didn't go to sleep until two hours beforehand. So who's going to want to wake up at you know seven o'clock in the morning, seven thirty in the morning to go to chakras? It's understandable. I'm not chas v'shalom saying that it's not understandable. But at its core, that's what Yiddishkeit is. It's a movement towards giving your life over to God. And Avera is a movement towards, it's my life, I want to do with it what I want. Li y'ayri v'a sani. It's my river. I made it. So it would appear that, it, that the ego is evil. But here's the great secret. This is the, this is the big move of tonight's shir. This is the chiddush I don't think it's the Levavich Rebbe's Chiddush, but he said it so beautifully. Why do we have an ego at all? Where does, that, where does an ego come from? The emes is that the Rabbani is the ultimate I. That's what God, God at its core is the real I, right? God at the core is the real true existence. So in its essence, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu looks at everything in the world, what does he see? Says Everything that HaKadosh Baruch Hu sees is himself, is an expression of himself. It's like, imagine a person in your head who's thinking. Right? When you look at the person in your head who's thinking, what do you know about that person? That's really me. I've just conjured up that person in my head. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu looks at everything in all of the cosmos, what he sees is himself. Because we are expressions of him. So in a certain sense, God is the ultimate ego. And as his ultimate creation, we experience our own ego the way that HaKadosh Baruch Hu experiences his ego. We look around in the world when we say, It's my river, I made it. In a certain sense, are we not behaving like HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Of course, it's not true. Of course, the difference between us and God is that when God thinks those things, they're true. And when we think those things, they're not. But at its core, when a person is a Balgaiva, in a certain sense, that's natural to the human existence, because that's the way how Kaddish Baruch Hu sees the world. So our job is to confront that ego that says, I exist, and to say, right, to confront that ego and go, in your essence, I know about you, that even though you're destructive, I know about you that you're divine. In other words, the ego that's evil, in a certain sense... In its core, in its essence, it's what? It's an expression of the divine. So if a person would lean into the ego that they have, and they would say, I know about you that you are just a misappropriation of the divine ego that every one of us has, then the entire ego would disappear. In other words, the secret of paro is that paro is just the misappropriation of the divine ego. Paro is the ultimate evil that exists in the world and throughout all of history... Really is what? In a certain sense, it's the closest thing, though obviously the most distorted thing, to the divine ego that we all have. Which is why we're meant to confront paro. Confronting paro means all the things when we say, I want, right? And there's nothing wrong with saying I want. I want is a beautiful thing. But when our desires go against what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants, Right? If we took a moment to stop and think about that, mo- that movement, that divine movement of, "I want to do what I want," and I don't want to listen to their abundance right now," Jewish women are tasked with this all the time. A kosher home is kosher because you say it is. We have no idea. Men have no idea what's going on. We trust our wives that it's kosher. And let's say you have a Shiloh, but you don't want to deal with it. Something, something fell somewhere in a place, I don't know, it was hot, it was soapy. I don't want to ask that, Shiloh. I, just, I took it out real quick. It was two seconds. Nobody's going to know the difference. Nobody's going to know the difference. I just don't want to have to, I don't want to call up whichever of, I don't know. I, 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 I don't have any cash for this. I have not, nobody's blaming anybody. It's a very natural human thing to do. And then we stop and we say, okay, this desire right now to not ask that, Shaiva. Really, in its core is what? It's, I want the world to be my way. Yes, because you're godly. And God wants the world to be his way. That's the reason you want the world to be your way. You are literally imitating HaKadosh Baruch. Hu. Of course, it's a misappropriation of the divine ego, but it's at its core, it's good. The moment you realize that your ego is an expression of the divine ego, your ego falls away. That's the secret. And so this is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to Moshe Rabinu. Bo El Paro. Come with me to the innermost chambers of Paro. It's a scary place to go, but I'll be with you when we go there. Let's confront Paro, because the moment that you confront Paro and you get to his essence, what do you realize? There is no Paro. Paro disappears. How does a Jew go free from Gullus when they realize there never was a Gullus? There never was a gullus. What was gullus really in its core? Gullus was really just a mechanism to get to Geula. The moment you realize there's no gullus, you're free. You're redeemed. But you have to be willing to go there first, to go back to our marshal with the husband and the wife. The moment you realize that that fight is an expression of how much you love each other, there's no more fight. So we, we have to go to couples counseling, and we have to get those cards that say, it makes me feel, fill in the blank when, fill in the blank, right? And you have to be patient, and you have to, right? All of that, and it's all beautiful and it's all wonderful, but all of that at its core is the discovery that all of the pain, all of the friction, all of the fear, all of these things are really what? They're they're mirages. They don't exist. They're complete fake-outs. They're all expressions of the divine. Misappropriations. But once you realize it's a misappropriation, then you're right back. It just fades away. That's a tremendous secret to learn. What does it mean for us? So we have a group of women here that are working their brains off to make Pesach. To clean in every nook and cranny, to do whatever they can to to make sure that their homes are are Pesach-tik. Without the time to sit and learn through Agada, to do the things that used to inspire us. And not that in any way this is going to make it better. But if you think deeply about all of these things that you're doing, and that hopefully your husbands and children are helping with, really what is that? That's that's a betel. I know you're doing a bidika, right? And ultimately bidika is mitzvah because we're gonna do betel, which is the oraisa. but really what are you doing when you're doing this bidika? Because you wanna be doing all these things? Because you wanna be down on your hands and knees, because it's pleasant to clean an oven? every jewish husband knows you don't buy ovens that are not self clean every like and if you have an if you have a, a an oven that is not self clean speak to your husband you made a mistake it's okay it's not that much money to undo i see i see it's the scrubbing it's the it's the chomarim. Right? there are certain things there's this one that we use in my house uh, st Moritz. you know yeah. this one yeah, everyone knows this one this this thing would clean the rust off of like a ship that they found on the if they if they pull up the Titanic, they're gonna use Saint Moritz to clean it again. Like, <laughs> the smell is horrific. And personally for me the smells go right to my migraine, right to it goes right here. And I'm like, can we just open the windows like just something? And like you know, and you have to let it sit because you have to let those corrosive things that have been caked onto your oven for weeks they have to come off somehow. And all those, all those natural remedies that you see, like if you'll just put baking soda and a little bit of water and lime juice, none of them work, right? We, then there's always that one woman who goes, no, it doesn't. No, it, for the rest of us, it doesn't. I don't know how it works for you, but for the rest of us, it doesn't work. Yeah, you just like you blow on it, and all of a sudden your oven is like sparkling clean, you know, like the YouTube video. They just come and wipe it away. They should sell that stuff on QVC. But the St. Mara stuff really works, right? That, that stuff really works. And you you're taking in these noxious fumes and you think to yourself what am i doing really to get rid of a few crumbs a says that you're giving yourself over to something that's larger than yourself and who says that the that the that, that seminary girl that you used to know that prepared for the Pesach seder by by reading the hagadah and by having hidush Torah to say who says that girl was more prepared for the seder? Who says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't get more nachas from, from the woman who shows up exhausted to the seder, just reveling in the nachas of listening to her tiny children say, Manashtana? Who says that's, that's... Personally, I think the latter is more real. The former was a, was a practice run. The former was, in a certain sense, if we're honest, we were serving ourselves a little bit, no? Like, look how gishmak, I can make it for me. And of course it's beautiful, course it's beautiful and it comes with you and it lives inside of you in those moments to access those moments and to feel that that expansiveness is of course a beautiful thing and Be'ez HaShem, you should be Zahra to go to many shiurim over the course of the next week and a half and have time on Pesach. But there's nothing like there's nothing like watching a family that's really made Pesach come to Pesach. Yes, is it easier if we go to the Pesach programs? Is it easier if we just drop ten thousand dollars and then we could just lock the door to our house and sign it over some people don't even go to the Rav. They make a shliach to go to the Rav because they're not going to be around in time when the Rav is selling chametz. I really have to mamish do nothing. I just hand a couple shekels to my neighbor and all of a sudden he's my shliach. Pesach is amazing. I have to do nothing for Pesach. They go to these Pesach hotels and then they're like, I am telling you I ate Khamatzuk pizza. It was Mamish, it was mm-hmm. and the and the and the tea room, it was like literally like all I had. first of all, the amount of food that there was 24-7, and I'm telling you, it tasted nothing like Pesach. The only thing at this we had a little bit of Pesach, was, we had to be Ose the Mitzvah of matzah but even that matza was the crispiest, most delicious matzah that we ever had. Bar Hashem, we figured out a way not to make Pesach. And and every trip and 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 we're going to this trip and we're going to that trip and we have this singer coming and that singer coming. Nebuch, this year, I heard from somebody who was running a Pesach program. He's like, there's only two nights of Chalamoid, so, like, really, really, what am I going to do? Like, the guests are coming because they want to have, you know, Benny Friedman and Simchaliner and Yoni Z, and now this year they're only getting two, so they're like, why am I paying so much money if I'm only getting two days of Chalamoid? <laughs> Nebuch, I, I feel badly for these people. They can only have two out of three, they can't have all three singers like they're used to having. I don't know, I don't know. There's such a thing called making Pesach. There's such a thing called I'm, I'm a vata myself to the will of the Avishter. And to show up exhausted to a Pesach, maybe in a certain way, that's a higher Pesach than any Pesach that we had before. And it doesn't mean that it's the same type of Pesach. And we know this. We go through stages in our lives. This is a more mature, more adult type of stage. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't spend time making the investments. We should, we can. And, there'll be, and there are Haggadahs coming out. If you could take a couple of minutes and to learn a Haggadah and to do something, of course, it's a beautiful thing to do. But chas v'shalom for somebody to think that because I showed up exhausted to Pesach it means that my Pesach was lacking. If you showed up to exhausted to Pesach, it means you confronted the real true essence of Gula, which is I live for something that's beyond myself. And the gaiva that we have in our life is also divine. I want it to be my way. I want to be able to show up for Pesach, and I want and I don't want to be exhausted. I hear that, but that's also because. There's a divine desire for the world to work the way you want it to work, and then the moment you realize that that's a divine desire, then the desire for everything else falls away. I just want to conclude by saying that while it perhaps is true that we have more more bedikas than the chafetz Chayim, and while perhaps it's true that we certainly have more stuff and more need to lift things up and move things around the bidikas that we're doing are not just physical the bidikas that we're doing are 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 deep and are real in the sense that we're asking ourselves what's really important to us I see we have a couple of uh, not married people in the audience so as Hashem you'll come to learn this soon but in the right time the um, But for those of us that are at a stage in our life where it's like how much can I do? How much can I do? So the answer is It's these incredible, awesome women throughout Jewish history people that role-modeled what it means to give our lives over to the Abishter, that's, that's the schis of Geula. It didn't come from the men. It came from the women. It always has. Men do whatever their Avaida is, but we all, we all know, men know, that the feeling of a home comes from a mother. And in the most beautiful way, if we could break the cycle of the here comes Pesach blues, which, which really is a beautiful song. At the end, it's like a beautiful song, but it, like, for the first like, three, four minutes of it, it's horrific. But the, in the end, it has a good ending. If you're going to look it up afterwards, from A.B. Rottenberg, who only writes beautiful music. But that particular song, I think, it got to a lot of people. But our children our children, should grow up with the way that my wife grew up from her mother, the way that my daughters are growing up from their mother. Pesach is a beautiful time. We're doing what the Abister wants is it physical? Is it difficult? Is it challenging? Of course, it's all of those things, but it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And if our homes could be places of simcha, then, ba'ez we should be zaycha. Ah, do we need a geula? They shut down the airports. They shut down the airports. <laughs> they shut now down I'm the airports. It, yeah. The geula, the geula is going to have to come. It may not come this Pesach through Ben Gurion. I have a feeling they'll open it up, but the. Uh, Somebody said it's hard to know which side you're on because both sides are flying Israeli flags. Usually it's easy to know which side you're on because that's the side that's flying the Israeli flags against the side that's not. Everybody's flying Israeli flags.